Good morning. We're reading in Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For a length of days and years of life, in peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on your tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. For the Lord reproves him who he loves, as the father of the son in whom he delights. Would you go to the Lord with me in prayer before we examine this passage together? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable this morning in your sight, our strength, and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in elementary school, I learned the difference between kinetic energy and potential energy. Kinetic energy is energy that is currently being expended. Most of you know the difference between kinetic energy and potential energy. Uh, but kinetic energy is the burning campfire or the spiraling football. Potential energy is like it sounds. It's pent-up energy. It's energy that's stored up and ready to become kinetic energy. On a day when we're celebrating high school or college graduates, that's the concept that comes to the front of my mind. I can see in my mind's eye the illustration in my elementary school science textbook of this cartoon stick figure pushing a stone up to the top of a hill and there it sits where just a nudge will send it careening back down and that potential energy can transform into movement and momentum. Those of you this morning who are graduating have been pushing that rock up the hill for years. It's been slow, tedious work. There have been unexpected twists and turns along the way. And yet you've reached the top and you are chock full of potential energy, a potential to live well or to choose a different path. I'm sure you know this, but it will still take you by surprise when it happens. Some of the people who have reached this summit with you and seem to have the greatest potential of all, will disappoint. I mean, it's not fun to talk about, but it's true, and you need to know. 
Others that don't seem to have a lot going for them at all will achieve great things. The counsel I'm going to give you today, and and by the way, this goes for anyone still living on this earth and certainly anybody in this room, is that the difference between a young person who squanders her potential and one who maximizes it. The difference between the one who finds all that God has for him in this life and the one who plays right into the hands of the enemy is not random. It's not a matter of chance. It's not a matter of your environment or the economy or the decisions that your parents made or the political climate. It's not, by, it's not determined by impersonal forces beyond your control. The outcome of your life is tied directly to the way that you choose to live. The stakes are high, the training wheels are gone, the safety has been turned off, and because the stakes are high, and because you must decide at every fork in the road whether to walk the path of of life or the path of destruction, I find myself turning to the one place in Scripture that's written primarily to young adults on the threshold of the rest of their life, the book of Proverbs. A book designed to prepare you to walk through the gate and into the city of man, where both folly and wisdom constantly cry out for your attention. Here in the third chapter of Proverbs, we're asked to give particular attention to what you might call the good life. Every graduate of every institution, it seems to me, and everybody in this room and everybody in the whole world is interested in finding for themselves something like the good life. Now, we could debate what the good life is, what it entails, or how to get there, But everybody wants some version of that. And the word of God doesn't leave us in the dark in this regard. So here in the first 12 verses of chapter 3, King Solomon opines to his princely sons about the good life. And in order to understand what he's saying, I'm going to walk us through three movements in the text. I'm going to tell you what they are, and then we're going to walk through them one by one. So first of all, we're going to see the prerequisites of the good life. Secondly, the principles of the good life. And then finally, what I would call the problem of delay. And you'll see what I mean by that momentarily. But let's begin by observing, in the first place, the prerequisites of the good life. The prerequisites of the good life. The book of Proverbs is famous for its pithy, quotable wisdom. Devoid of context, most of what you read in this book could easily find a place, you know, on an inspirational poster in your office break room or at the chapter heading of a best-selling self-help book. Students of Old Testament wisdom call this the universal character of the book of Proverbs. A lot of what you read here makes as much sense outside an Egyptian palace or a Greek academy as it would inside the walls of Jerusalem. In fact, there are some verses in Proverbs that match similar documents from Egypt or Mesopotamia around the same time. This is the universal character of the book of Proverbs. And given that this is the case, you might be tempted to sort of pick and choose the different parts of this book that you like, that match up with what you already think, and then sort of discard everything else. But if you're reading the book of Proverbs carefully, you'll see that it only truly makes sense if, th- if certain things are true. Notice, for example, what these verses assume implicitly. They implicitly assume that God actually exists. I mean, 
Trust in the Lord. Honor the Lord. You say, Jake, no doy. It's in the Bible. <laughs> However, you would think that this could go without saying, but unfortunately we've learned in Western society to lead a religious and moral life based on some of the teachings of the Bible and even to speak of God without actually believing that he is a real person with a real mind and real affections and real desires. I'm telling you, most people in the world, when you really peel back the layers of their worldview, think of God as a useful, therapeutic, spiritualish concept, but they don't actually believe he exists, certainly not as he describes himself in Scripture. God is just this religious idea that kind of helps people get through their day. Uh, some people have the gym, Others have the running club, others have golf, others have video games, others have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, but if you have God, that's fine. If that's helpful to you, so much the better. But what these verses actually assume is that God really exists, that he is a real being who has existed from before the beginning and who has made all things and, and holds his human creatures accountable, who reveals himself and his character in the pages of Scripture. These verses assume, moreover, that creation has a moral order to it. Because God exists, it stands to reason that the world he has made reflects his moral character, that an unchangeable standard of morality is baked into the way that the universe is built. That the world, of course, will tell you that morality is a construct. An important one, but a construct nonetheless. A matter of taste, essentially. Tastes change, and so does morality. But in order to truly pursue the good life, a life well lived, a life of blessing and fulfillment, you must reject this notion. You must be vigilant to expose it wherever you encounter it because the idea that right and wrong are merely a matter of taste, preference, will attempt to seduce you at every turn. Or consider this assumption. This passage along with the rest of Scripture assumes implicitly that you have choices and those choices matter. You have choices, and those choices matter. In 12 verses, we see six commands. And the implication is that you must choose to obey. And the choice you make is going to impact your life. Once again, we see in the world the opposite message. The world is going to call into question the dignity of your very choices themselves. They're going to encourage you to blame all of your problems on something else, some impersonal force. You've been successful hey, I'm not surprised given the advantages that you've been given in the world. You know, you've, you, you're a failure? Well, it's not surprising consider the background that you have and the way that you had to grow, grow up and the circumstances of your upbringing. Now, I hasten to clarify that the circumstances you faced to, that, to this point are, are nothing to be brushed aside. They're very significant, but your choices matter too. God exists. His creation has a moral order. You have choices and those choices matter. All of this is implicitly assumed in this passage and you're not going to experience the good life unless you embrace those realities as well. But consider as well what these verses assume explicitly. Did you notice how twice in this passage and actually 15 times in the first 10 chapters of the book of Proverbs, the recipient of these words is named my son, in verse 1. My son, in verse 11. Repeatedly, my son. There's more to this little phrase than you might realize. 
because it reminds us that the book of Proverbs has a very specific author and audience. Uh, Chapter one, verse one tells us that these are the Proverbs of Solomon, king of Israel. And the repetition of my son tells us that they were originally intended for the royal heir to Solomon's throne. In other words, these are not universal principles of life designed to be just taken by anybody and applied directly to however you want to live. These are covenant instructions to, to, they're tied to covenant promises intended for covenant family members. Solomon, as you know, he's the son of David. That's a man that God made great promises to. Promises that would extend all the way throughout his line, that he would always have a man to sit upon the throne. This means that whatever God promised to David would be fulfilled in his descendants. So the recipients of this short speech find themselves in a special relationship to the God of the universe. They're not just loved by God in a generic sense, like God loves everybody. No, they're loved by God as members of his family, as his children. So what I'm saying is that if you want to live the good life or something like it, if you want to launch out into a life well-lived, then this passage describes a prerequisite to that life. You must live in a special relationship to the God who actually exists and who holds all men accountable for the way that they choose to live. So zooming out to the teachings of the entire Bible for just a moment, here's what that means. That means that in order to live the good life, you must have a personal relationship with God in Christ. You must know Jesus Christ. Do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God made you and that you are accountable to him for the way that you choose to live? Have you come to the place in your thinking where you realize that the evil that you see in the world, the things that you see that are wrong with society actually exist in seed form in your own heart and that because of the way that you choose to live, the, the things that you choose to do, the things that you've thought, the things that your heart has desired, you cannot for one moment stand in the presence of a holy God because he's perfectly just. Have you come to realize that the perfect son of God, born 2,000 years ago, perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous demands in your place, and he took the curse of sin instead of you, and, and have you called out to him with empty hands? Like, I've got nothing, God, except the sin which makes my salvation necessary, and I need a Savior. Would you please forgive me? The Apostle John says that as many as received him, even those who believe in his name, who personally trust him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Amen. Have you received him? Have you personally trusted him? Because if you're relying on your upbringing or your parents or like your baptism or some prayer that you prayed when you were seven, your church membership, or anything else that you've done as some kind of insurance against eternal disaster while life, you know, you can just, your, the rest of your life is your own. I must warn you that today is the day to trade in that superficial surface level religion for a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're not sure, if you're not 100% sure that you are a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ, I am begging you, please don't wait. 
Today may be your last day. And so today is the day that you must turn from your sin and self-reliance and call out to Jesus in faith. So if you're not sure, immediately after this service, let's talk. Who cares what you have planned for lunch? Who cares what anybody else thinks? Let's get this settled. The prerequisite of the good life is that we have a real relationship with the God who actually exists and holds all men to account through faith in Jesus Christ. You can get a lot out of these verses, but ultimately, when it really matters, they will not help you unless you have that personal relationship. That's the prerequisite of the good life, but notice with me the principles of the good life. The principles of the good life. Here in verses one through 10, Solomon sort of follows this poetic pattern. Command, promise, command, promise, command, promise, all the way through the end of verse 10. Do this and you'll get that. So let's just take these one by one in order to frame up uh, these principles in a way that makes them a little easier to remember. Look with me at verses one and two, for example. He says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Uh, Here is principle number one. If you want the good life, make the Bible your bedrock. Make the Bible your bedrock. Here's where I'm getting this. The word translated teaching here in verse 1 is actually the Hebrew word Torah, underscoring the fact that what Solomon is sharing with his sons is in fact Scripture. So what he's saying is, my son... By the way, this, the word itself in Hebrew, it's, it's located in an emphatic position in the verse. So what he's saying is something like this. My Torah, don't forget. My commandment, your heart keep. In other words, you're going to listen to somebody. You're going to let someone have authority and, and give you principles for how to live. You're going to march by, by someone's beat. Let it be the beat of the Bible. Let your life be shaped by the Bible. Let the Bible be your bedrock. God has given to you a comprehensive, completely reliable, written revelation of who he is and what he's like and what he's done in the world. It's not a musty rule book. It's a revelation of a person. It's a retelling of his story, and it's a retelling of your story. So don't let this book gather dust. Diligently study its contents. Read it every single day. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. What does Solomon say? He says, don't forget it. Why? Because there's going to be hundreds of voices telling you to forget what you read in this book, or or at the least implying that if you're in this book, you're wasting your time by the way that they lead you. Do not listen to these voices. I'm sorry to say, many of the churches even that you will visit if you move away from here will barely crack it open on a Sunday morning. And I just want to say practically, if you find that it's important for you to open the Bible by yourself in your room on a Monday morning, then you better be at a church that cracks it open on Sunday morning. I know it's hard to understand sometimes, and and trust me, it's my job to, to read and teach the Bible. I know it feels foreign or barely relevant to you sometimes. I know there are many parts of this book that you feel like you already know really well. Like, I've mastered this. But here, I have a question for you. Has it mastered you? Because if not, then you're not done. 
make the Bible your bedrock. And guess what? You'll get the good life. Length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. That sounds pretty good. If you're paying attention to the big story of Scripture, you know that these are covenant blessings. Long life and peace. Shalom, Solomon says. Principle number two, look with me at verses three and four. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Principle number two, if you want the good life, you must lean in to loyal love. You must lean in to loyal love. Uh, These verses are intentionally ambiguous, I think, is Solomon saying you should have steadfast love towards somebody else? Or is he saying, don't let go of God's steadfast love toward you? I think he means to be ambiguous. He means a little bit of both. And the reason I say that is because of how that phrase, steadfast love, is used in the Old Testament. This is the single Hebrew word, chesed. Uh, It means something like covenant love or loyal love. It appears all over the Old Testament. It's the kind of loyalty that God both shows toward and expects from his covenant people. Uh, So here's basically what this means. If it's true that you are one of God's people, if you have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ, then in order to live the good life, you must make it your aim to hang tightly to that relationship that you have, your covenant relationship with God, and you must not let go. Now, I know you know this, but the river of life is going to lead you into some dangerous rapids. You're going to be tossed and turned and pulled on and dragged under and buffeted by the waves of challenging classes or difficult bosses or a spouse who disappoints or a diagnosis that shakes you to the core. Or just the confusing nature of the everyday changes of life that lead you to question everything you thought you knew. And you might be so confused and shaken that you're tempted to let go. And Solomon is saying, don't let go. Hang on to steadfast love, loyal love. Lean into it. On the flip side, you're at a stage of life when your brain has never been sharper, when your abilities have never been greater, when your opportunities to succeed in the short term have never been more within reach. And in your strength, you're going to be tempted, perhaps at some point in your life, to say, I've got this. I can push through. I got to get this school done. I got to work a lot of hours and pay for it. And then I'll return to church. I'll go back to read my Bible. I'll go back to living for the Lord. After I graduate, after I rise above the entry level, after I pay off my school debt, after, after, after. And you may be so preoccupied with other things that you're tempted to let go of God. And Solomon is saying, don't let go. Hang on. Now, it is impossible to overstate the importance of this. In fact, if I had to cut away like everything else I'm preaching on this morning and only have like two minutes to talk to you about these things, I would cut away everything else and say this. The world and your own heart is going to constantly beckon you to build your life on what you can achieve, on the grades you get, the money you make, the possessions you acquire, the accomplishments that you reach, and a million other things that you do to get ahead in life, you will be tempted to define yourself by this scorecard, to evaluate your worth based on how you stack up against everybody else that in your same peer group. You are going to be constantly tempted along those lines. And what I want to say is this. 
that comparison approach to life, that achievement-oriented approach to who you are as a person, it is going to lead you to nowhere else but despair and destruction. Because here's what's going to happen. Either you're going to get, you're going to find that you never measure up to the standard that even you have set. Or you're going to reach your goals and have nothing left to live for. You're going to realize it's meaningless. That's what idolatry does. It leads you in your thirst for more to this muddy puddle, a broken cistern that will leave you spiritually sick and chronically unsatisfied. But friends, listen to me. There is a better way. If you build your life and your identity and your goals and your joy and your happiness around the single simple truth that God shows in his unyielding, unstopping, unconditional, unbroken love toward you, then there will be no limit to your joy. You will achieve some of your goals, but they're just going to be opportunities for you to serve the one who's loved you. Some of your goals you won't get to, but that's okay because... You're going to remain unshaken because your life is built on something much more solid. So lean into loyal love. Embrace and hang on to your relationship with God in Christ. Principle number one, make the Bible your bedrock. Principle two, lean into loyal love. Principle number three, look with me at verses five and six. Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Principles three and four kind of go together, but here's principle number three. If you want to experience the good life, give God the benefit of the doubt. If you want to experience the good life, give God the benefit of the doubt. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Solomon tells us in verse five. I imagine this verse is familiar to many of you, but it is so much more than a sentimental mantra. It's a reminder that there will be times when the circumstances you face and the guidance that God gives you in his word will seem to be completely at odds with one another and you'll have to choose. Am I gonna go with what I see or am I gonna go with what God says? God, I know you said not to forsake the assembly of your people by gathering with the church, but if I spend half of my Sundays this semester at church, I'm not gonna pass my chemistry lab. God, I hear what you're saying about not being yoked together with unbelievers, but this girl I'm with is just so wonderful. And I bet if I stay with her, I can reach her for the gospel. God, I know you created human beings in your image, but if I don't get that abortion, I'll never graduate. Or how about this one? God, I know you said that if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive. But how could you ever forgive me for that? You know this, and you've already faced these types of circumstances where the wisdom and promises of God seem to ring hollow in the face of what's in front of you. But listen, God knew those things were coming. They don't take him by surprise. He isn't surprised by what's going on in the world. So when it's easy and when it's not, you must give God the benefit of the doubt. Principle number four is the other side of the same coin. We're told in verse seven, be not wise in your own eyes. So often our tendency is to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and question just about everything that God says. But here's principle 
uh, number next. Principle number four. If you're going to experience the good life, then you must learn to give God the benefit of the doubt. And principle number four, question yourself. Question yourself. If you want to experience the good life, you got to learn that. Notice I didn't say, be down on yourself, hate yourself. I didn't say that. Question yourself. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And we grow very comfortable questioning all kinds of things. The world is going to celebrate you if you question your parents, if you question your boss, your, your God, your teachers, the books you read, uh, the scions of fashion, your doctor, just about everything else. The world will celebrate it, but don't ever, ever, ever question your heart. That's what the world will tell you. How foolish. Reject the lie that you must follow your own desires and whims in order to be an authentic and fulfilled person. That is a ridiculous lie. This is one of the most corrosive deceptions of our day, and it's been shoved in your face from the very first Disney film you watched as a kid to, the, to probably you're going to hear it a bunch in the next few days. Follow your heart. No! Question your heart. Give God the benefit of the doubt. That means that there will be times when you don't feel like reading the Bible, but you do. Where you don't feel like praying or connecting with your community group or or sharing your faith with a coworker. And you do it anyway. Because you recognize that yourself, your heart, is an unreliable guide. Make the Bible your bedrock. Lean into loyal love. Give God the benefit of the doubt. Question yourself. Principle number five is found in verses nine and ten. Honor the Lord with your wealth, Solomon says. Uh, He gets real specific here, doesn't he? If you want to live the good life, here's principle number five. You must remember the reason for riches. Remember the reason for riches. Let's face it, a huge portion of your life is going to be preoccupied with acquiring possessions, money in the bank, a house, a car, fancy clothes and shoes, that you will be tempted, no matter how much wealth you possess, to make, to think of money and possessions as the solution to every problem in your life. Just, just look at our political discourse in America today. Doesn't it boil down to this? Who's, which political candidate is going to leave me with the most money in my wallet? Just, it's everywhere. But the purpose of money isn't to make life meaningful. The purpose of your wealth is to showcase the wonderful worth of a great and wonderful God. So when I do without that which I cannot afford, I have the opportunity to show that I don't need stuff to be happy because I have a relationship with God in Christ. When I'm generous with my possessions, I have the opportunity to show my gratitude for the fact that God has been generous to me. When I show hospitality and share my home with others, I have the opportunity to remember that God welcomed me to his table when I was still his enemy. When I give toward a missionary or my local church, I have the opportunity to display my faith in God's plan, what he said in his word, to fulfill the great commission and reach the nations with the gospel. My friends, don't wait until you have enough to start being generous with your wealth. Be faithful when you have little 
and then continue when you have much. Make the Bible your bedrock. Lean into loyal love. Give God the benefit of the doubt. Question yourself. Remember the reason for riches. And look at what God promises when we do these things. We get the good life. Long life. Peace. Plenty. Straight paths with few obstacles. Now, if you're paying attention and you're looking at the world around you, you might, you're, you might find yourself a little disoriented, like looking at the passage and then looking around at the world. Look at the passage and then looking around at the world. Like there are all these people out there who are trying to faithfully follow what God has said. They, they meet the prerequisite of the good life. They're, they're believers in Jesus Christ. They have a relationship with God in Christ. You look at the way that they're living and they're following all these principles, but you can see that they're, they're suffering. They're going through difficulty. In fact, some, in some cases, they seem to face even greater difficulty because of their faithfulness as opposed to if they decided to disobey. And so that might lead you to question, is this really true? Does that mean these promises ring hollow, that, that God is trying to manipulate us into obedience and trust without delivering on his promises? Now, in order to answer that question, and there is an answer to that question, we have to keep reading in the passage. So let's move on from the prerequisite of the good life and the principles of the good life to finally the problem of delay. My son, he says, verse 11, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Not only do we get a repetition of that phrase, my son, Solomon, getting their attention, but he kind of breaks, breaks up the pattern, promise, uh, command, promise, command, promise, command, promise, and then here in verses 11 and 12, it's command and not a promise, but a reminder of who you're related to. See, what Solomon is reminding his sons is that in order to really bring us into all that God has for us, he wisely, lovingly, patiently, gently brings us into a pathway that, that's going to involve pain along the way. We hear that word discipline and we immediately think of something negative, punishment for bad behavior reserved for exceptional circumstances because we've been out of line and we need to get back, out, back in line and then the punishment will be over and the discipline is gone. But that's not the way that the Bible uses the word. God, yes, corrects us, but his discipline is not merely corrective. It is formative. In other words, God brings us through seasons of difficulty and pain in order to bring about a good result in our lives. Actually, this is the only part of this passage that is explicitly and fully quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12. So we have a divinely inspired sermon on our text. You say, Jake, why don't we just read that instead of listening to you? Well, let's look at it. In Hebrews chapter 12, let me just kind of summarize it for us. After the writer to the Hebrews lists examples of faithful men and women who died before the promises were fulfilled in their, life, in their lifetimes, reminds his readers that the primary way that God disciplines his children the primary way he brings them into the kind of obedience described here in Proverbs chapter 3 is through patient endurance of trials. Listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, it is for discipline that you have to 
endure. It's for discipline that you have to endure. In other words, when God's formative discipline leads you into a season where you have to wait, where you have to endure, where the promises given in these verses are not immediately fulfilled, then do not lose heart. Don't look down on that experience. Don't consider it a waste. Why? Because God's doing something. Because the greatest blessing of all, it's not the long life or the peace or the full barns or the straight paths. It's the supremely worthwhile knowledge that God is your loving Father and that His discipline is proof of His faithful, loving care. So the promises are true. And the day, friends, is going to come when you will be dazzlingly blown away by the way that God fulfills these promises in your life. But we have to remember that God's timeline is different from ours. You already know this. You've experienced this in your life. A week of vacation goes by so much faster than a week in the middle of March sitting in school. An hour in the dentist's waiting room passes so much more slowly than an hour at your favorite restaurant. We know this. And I'm telling you, whether you are young or old, whether you feel like you have decades ahead of you or mere months, the day will come for all those to whom God could say, my son or my daughter, that you will look back on the tedium and the uncertainty and the difficulty and the grief and all those trials you have had to endure in the formative discipline that God has lovingly allowed in your life and, and, and they will, I'm telling you, they will seem like the snap of a finger and you will get it. Oh yes, these promises are true. They're not just general, generic principles that hold sway some of the time. And even in the here and now, we enjoy the foretaste of divine glory, but do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Do not count it worthless that you will have to wait. Do not try to escape the endurance that God calls you to undergo. Because that endurance will be worth it. Last week, uh, Pastor Guy and I met dozens of young people who are giving their lives, laying aside comfort, security, treasure, so many other things, for the sake of the mission to get the gospel to the nations where it's never been heard. And, and I'm telling you, they are as happy about it as any 20-something planning her wedding or getting a promotion, or crushing it at their job, or jet-setting to their next vacation destination, I would argue they are probably more happy <laughs> than those other types of people. I think of my own aunt and uncle, who've been involved in a similar ministry since before I was born. Okay, that's a, that's a long time ago. Who have very little of this world's goods who have slept many a night underneath a mosquito net, who have shed countless tears of goodbye when saying goodbye to their friends and loved ones as they set out to live in some of the most difficult contexts on the planet. And I can tell you this, honestly, they are some of the most joyful people I have ever met. And why? Because they are experiencing in the here and now the down payment of what God promises to us in Proverbs chapter 3. 
They know that length of days and years of life and peace, that favor and good success in the sight of God and man, that straight paths, healing and refreshment, full barns and vats bursting with wine, and so much more lie in their everlasting future. And so they joyfully make the Bible their bedrock, lean into loyal love, give God the benefit of the doubt, question themselves, and remember the reason for riches. They endure the formative discipline of the Lord, cheered on by a great cloud of witnesses, looking forward to the finish line where King Jesus waits, ignoring the invitations of the world because they know their good Father disciplines them in love. He disciplines the ones in whom his soul delights. So my prayer for you, graduates, everybody else, is that you will see, that we will see, that there is something better than a diploma or a degree, a promotion or a possession, a sense of achievement or accomplishment, that you will find in your relationship with God and Jesus Christ a promise of the good life, not an easy life, but a worthwhile life. Not a popular life, but a life filled with promise that will one day give way to a wonderful reality. Would you bow with me now? God, you're far wiser than we are. And I know that the day is going to come when it will it will be a lot easier for us to make sense of this than it is now. Because the truth of the matter is, there are many in this room who read a passage like this and they are just fighting in their spirit to believe it. And so I pray, Spirit of God, that you would comfort the hearts of your children. That you would convict those who are far from you that you would lead us all not to despise the way that you have called us to endure. 